to your book. <laughs> and this is? This is Johnny Brick, how are you? Hey, how are you? Are you alright? <laughs> really well. It's 11 o'clock, isn't it? I've only just realised. Dare I say, it, I've still got my dressing gown on. It was, um, it was, uh, yeah, I still thought it was about 10. Well, I loved writing it. I thoroughly enjoyed writing it. I mean, I've only done seven books, but some of them, they write themselves. And I think that's what I hope this one would be like. And yeah, it was. It you was. actually put all your books um, in the inside flap. You've written, evidently, Bloody Southerners, which is the one we had you in to talk about last time. Yep. Um, You've also written the Lee Roos story, Lost in France, about football's first superstar, which I haven't read, but need to put that right. Um, Oh, I'll I'll talk till the cows come home about that one. I mean, that's still... That's a weird one, because it's... Well, Lee died in 1916, so you would think that would be the full stop on that story there, but it's not because stuff still keeps on coming to light about him. Yeah, um, you, you keep getting presented with things and then you have to go back to his family and say, guess what, Grandpa's Yeah, dug got up. this, yeah. we've got that, we found this, somebody's found that, somebody's... I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, I mean, that is the story that just keeps on giving, really. Um, it's a tragic end to mm. an amazing life, but I think the wonderful thing about that is that unintentionally I kind of rescued him from, you know, obscurity. You know, just by telling his story, it was kind of, it was sort of there, but by bringing it all together and people knew different bits and pieces about him, but nobody had ever written one definitive story. And I did it and brought lots of different people together and and it's kind of gone from there, really. So, yeah, I think out of all of them, that's the one I feel most passionately about. Well, Um, the the other thing I do is the music library. So I would Ah. have you in the music library. Uh, I talked to a bloke yesterday, Daryl Easley, whom you may have heard of. Uh, Daryl does everything. He was in charge of Motown's catalogue in the 2000s. He put together the Decca record story quite recently. But he has not written The Train Kept a Rolling, how the train song (laughs) changed the face of popular music. There are still... John Mayer wrote a song called Last Train Home two years ago. I tell you what, I t- don't, that's another one don't even get me started on because that um, there are hundreds, thousands, basically. I mean, I grew up loving trains. Who doesn't love a good old-fashioned vintage train? But I love my music. And I contacted lots of people who had done train songs, like real A-list celebrity singers, you know, kind of, and people you'd heard of and whatever. And um, I think with one or two exceptions, what was it Chuck Berry was still alive and he wanted paying yeah, and I couldn't do I that. I would have imagined, yeah. But everybody else did it out of the goodness of their heart. And I think the only one who sort of said a yes but didn't go through with it was Robert Plant. Everybody else did. And that was it's because they're kind of, you know, I mean, the train songs tend to be, you know, they're about love, loss, escapism, sex. They're all kinds of different things when you look beneath the meaning. So it wasn't just, this is a song about this train. This, You know, it's about the hidden meanings and the stories behind the actual songs. You know, kind of old skiffle songs right the way through to loads of 70 songs and stuff. And oh, I had a blast writing that one too. Is there a playlist anywhere? Is there a Spotify playlist that you've done? I haven't done it. Somebody has, oh, actually. Good. And if you go, somebody has, I think if Two or three people have done them because I've been sent them over like the last few years. But there is one on. on I remember in the early days um, because the idea was bought from my. Well, I got it from my daughter. We were in a car driving along the M62 one day years ago, and she went, "Dad, why are there so many songs about trains?" I think a train a song had been on the radio or whatever. 
And my gut feeling was a bit like you. I thought, well, there's not that many. And then you start thinking of them and you think, actually, there are. Uh, and no one had written a book about... I mean, I just... I, I love in particular, maybe the same as you, I love the stories behind songs. Oh, and, yes, yeah. And it turns out that next to um, the opposite sex, you know, for instance, girls singing about boys, boys singing about girls, the one thing that turns up more than anything else in songs are trains. Because, as singers and songwriters will tell you, they're literally an easy vehicle for your song to take your song somewhere. So, um, yeah, that was a blast. That I've was been, great fun. I've one. been trying to think for the last two minutes whether the band Train have recorded a song about trains. And ironically, I don't think they have. I don't think they have, but I do remember somebody sending me a picture of, what was it, whoever, I don't really follow Train, I haven't got a clue. But you know, New know album is them, very good. It's good, is it? I'm going to have yeah. to borrow this book off you. I'm sure it's on your favourite websites. But um, uh, to get me books, <laughs> including this, yeah. Spencer Vine, it is A Lifetime of Football and Friendship. It is the best book I have read this year. And I've followed a few, Eric and Dave. Uh, on the front, you've got, them wearing jumpers in the 1950s and 60s and on the back you've got them in their bowls uniform both eric gill and dave hollins are still alive lee roos whom we talked about earlier is very much not alive did you give them copy approval um no because they belong to an era where i don't think copy approval is really that important i mean these are a couple of guys who as i said in the book i mean they grew up during World War Two and have very clear memories of World War Two and had near misses. And they also grew up in relative poverty, particularly Eric. I mean, he was born in slum housing in Camden. But, you know, back in the well, 1930, you know, Camden now is, you know, all gentrified and lovely and beautiful and million pound houses everywhere and three million pound houses. They're not half of it down. Because of HS2, exactly. yeah. Yeah, well, that as well. But, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, copy approval, no. They, 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 they just said, you know, I knew of Eric to start with. He was the one, you know, I did an interview with because I write for Brighton's Matchday programme as well. And I did an interview with Eric in the very early days of COVID because Brighton decided they were going to kind of continue when football restarted. They were going to continue doing their Matchday Mac. Did an interview with Eric. He happened to say about halfway through we were talking and the subject of Dave, who was initially his understudy at Brighton, came up. And he just, in a throwaway remark, he just said, oh, yeah, we're still mates. And I missed it at first. And it wasn't until I played the recording of the interview back, I thought, what? What did he say? You know, because, I mean, they met in 1955. So it's a, a fair old time ago, you know, best part of 70 years. And I phoned him back, Eric, back and said, you know, you mentioned you were still mates with Dave. And he said, oh, yeah, I, I see him most weeks. We're going bowling tomorrow. And it was like, okay. So I said, you know, can I have Dave's number, maybe, do a chat with him and an interview with him for Brighton's programme? You know, amongst Brighton fans who read the pieces, there was an awful lot of love and affection towards their stories and who they were and the fact they were still friends. And I think in the back of your mind, that seed of, oh, this could be something else here, you know, is kind of planted because I thought there's so many stories here, not just related to Brighton, but I mean their lives in general, you know, not just related to football, but like their lives in general, what yeah. they've done. It's, it's uh, such a good piece of work and yeah. I hope it's widely read. 
when I was reviewing it for Goodreads, I said it will definitely get a reprint because every Brighton fan will go out and buy this. Graham Potter will read this book. If you send him a copy, he will get both of them. There'll be a club interview. Paul will be all over it for the media. It is, it's stunning because it's not just about football. Has Luca read it? Yet? Uh, no. Well, I mean, I only got my cop. I I only got my first copy. What last Thursday? And Luca's on school holidays, and basically, kind of like his. Um, well, I, actually, I'm I'm undoing him really at the moment. I'm saying his focus at the moment is lying in in the mornings and not reading. But he's off goalkeeping training this morning. Very good. So uh, he's putting in his homework, and he's got a match tomorrow. So actually, he's probably working harder this summer holidays than I ever did. And that this is at, like, a writer's summer. I tend to yeah, I've got a short week this week. Um, <laughs> I'm winding it down slowly just because. Um, I've got other things that I want to do and I've talked to most people. It's basically Henry Winter, Simon Cooper, David Goldblatt, uh, Rafa yeah. Honigstein. I've not spoken to very few writers uh, and I'm glad I've got you back in here to talk about Eric and Dave, which is out on pitch, priced £18.99. So if Luca's a goalkeeper, will he take as good uh, advice what Eric and Dave offer, which is to enjoy it and anticipate the play. <laughs> yes. I mean, as, as Eric and Dave will tell you, at one end of goalkeeping, and Luca in like the modern age, uh, my son Luca, I should say, um, it is, it's a very different position now. You know, I mean, as as it's it exasperates Dave Hollins in particular oh, that's because extraordinary I mean, to read that. You know, he yeah, he says that basically, you know, it's like well, they're not goalkeepers anymore. It's more like you know, ice hockey goaltenders basically. You know, and and the fact that you know you're expected to be a centre back or a sweeper as well as a goalkeeper, you know, it, it it drives him mad. But I think some things you know will never change. You know, for instance, uh, you know, Dave's advice and Eric as well, you know, just about have your bearings when you're in goal, you know, know where your near post is, know where your far post is, know where the middle is, you know, that kind of, and just that feeling of, you know, being on your own, that never goes away, you know, no matter, you know, from the point when the position of goalkeeper was invented, I mean, just that sense that you're on your own and you've got to focus, you know, that hasn't changed whether it's you know, 1910 or 2010 or whatever, it's, it's, you've got to be switched on, you know, mentally you've got to be alert because, because if you don't have that, you're doomed. So yeah, that's, that's the same for goalkeepers of all generations, I think. Does Luca have any superstitions, much like Eric, who puts his left boot on first and kicks the post and touches the bar? Um, Luca has the one we watched. There was a film came out. Actually, I'm looking at the um, the DVD. I do old fashioned DVD school in, in uh, you know in this in this house. I still go out and buy them. And I got the film about Bert Troutman called The Keeper a few years ago. Very good film. In case you know anyone out there hasn't seen it, worth getting. In that, Bert always does his left post and his right post, and Luca picked that up about four or five years ago when he was you know starting to kind of you know, playing goal. So he now touches, you know, left post, right post, and he also does the crossbar. Left foot, left post first, right post second, then the crossbar. Just get your bearings. Yeah. So, yeah. That's the way yeah. you're absolutely getting your bearings. Um, yeah. We will talk about the two men's careers, but every time I look at my pot of Vicks now, I will think of Dave <laughs> Collins. I've this, never heard this of was that extraordinary. In um, yeah. Right at the end of the book, yeah. he kind of drops it in that he's taking, and you're brilliant at kind of um, learning what's going on here. But it's a particular kind of 
deficiency in his nostrils. That I'm... But it's basically, I mean, all, you know, goalkeepers, you know, football players in general, lots of them have the superstitions that they do, you know, before matches, you know. Uh, whether it be putting a, a particular boot on first, you know, left before right or whatever, or, you know, putting one glove on first or whatever. You, um, but Dave used to, to kind of, I suppose, sharpen the senses. He used to put um, Vic up his nose, you know, kind of, you know, smelling, you know, kind of, uh, I don't know, how would you describe Vic's? I always remember it in the kind of pod thing that you used to yeah. kind of breathe in. It's, uh, you know, it's to help with the breathing, so to speak. So he used to do that before every match. And then again, sometimes at half time. And he did it so much that over the course of the years that he was playing, he burnt the linings of his nostrils away. And it caused untold problems in later life. He had to have operations to have, you know, little polyps taken away and everything. So if there's any young keepers out there who are doing that as a pre-match superstition, basically taking Vicks and whatever, you know, to sharpen their senses and wake up a little bit, stop it. It will just kill your nose for good. Wasn't there a trend of footballers putting Vicks on their, kind of the middle of their shirt and nose strips? There was, so Robbie Fowler's got to watch out. At this yeah, point. I remember, I remember the nose strips. Yeah, that was a bit of a fad, wasn't it? When was that? In the 1990s, oh yeah, wasn't it? At mid, least when I first late. started watching football, I think, um, a long, long time ago. Eric yeah. made his debut for Brighton 70 years ago. Are the club going to celebrate that? Um... I think they probably they will probably do something. Well, I'll be doing something probably in the match day, Mac. I mean, he made his debut actually. His league debut was for Charlton at Old Trafford the year before that, so 1951. There, and they lost three two. He played well though. His only performance for Charlton, or his only appearance basically, and Charlton were top flight then. Brighton were in the third division, uh, or Division Three South as it was then. So in order to get appearances and everything and, and play some football, you know, he dropped down two divisions. Um, but Brighton were kind of, I mean, I mean it's, you look at Division 3 South then, and I mean, only one club got promoted every year. And it was almost impossible to get out of. You knew the chance, you know, there was no playoffs then or anything. It was basically, if you didn't win the league, you were stuffed. So it's 23 out of 24 clubs each year. Were, were doomed to failure before a ball was even kicked. And you look at some of the clubs that are down there, you know, there's like Brighton, Southampton, Norwich, Ipswich, Crystal Palace. Clubs that, you know, kind of good, medium to larger, you know, sized clubs now who were just marooned there and they just couldn't get out of, of that league. So, you know, it was a very good, it was a good standard of football. There were big clubs there playing in front of big post-war attendances. And so dropping down a couple of divisions didn't do Eric any harm and... And yeah, he um, he made his debut against Exeter, and then um, he had a couple of rivals for the position before he really made it his own. And then he played 247 straight games, which at the time equaled a football league record. He didn't break it because, unbelievably, on the eve of when he should have actually got the record and played his 248th game, he developed flu. Amazing. I know. Absolutely was, amazing. You know, I know, it's crazy. It was in the press that he'd done it, and it was on the World Service and everything that he'd done it, and amazingly, he got flu in the week beforehand and missed out. Do you think that uh, Ted Ditchburn had sneezed on a letter <laughs> and sent well, Ted, it through? Yeah, Ted Ditchburn was the guy who held the record, which was 247 games. Ted Ditchburn was uh, uh, playing for Tottenham Hotspur. Yeah. yeah, Ted, in all fairness, he's a class act because he sent a telegram to Eric congratulating him for beating his record 
And Eric had to send a telegram back and say, mate, sorry, we're sharing it now because guess what? I've got flu. Mm. But the thing is, is that is that Eric's misfortune opened the door to Dave, his good friend. His good friend uh, and lodger. And lo- I know, I know, you couldn't make this stuff up, basically. I mean, goalkeepers back then, you know, you know, we think now of goalkeepers being, you know, this goalkeepers union and the old goalkeepers are friends and whatever. But as Eric says... You know, back then in the 1950s, you know, not all goalkeepers, you know, were that camaraderie. Certainly didn't exist between goalkeepers at the same clubs because back then, if you weren't in the first team, you didn't get the full wage. You know, you got a a lesser pay packet, basically, if you were in the reserves. Uh, Don't forget, this was the time when, of course, in the summer, everyone's wages dropped in, in, uh, you know, the kind of summer recess. So, you know, if you went in the first team, it could kind of cause, you know, a bit of antagonism, a bit of resentment and whatever. But but Eric had been at Brighton for four years and then Dave came along and they just struck up a friendship, immediately became friends. Uh, this was the time as well when they both done national service. So Eric had had to have done national service. Dave had to do national service as well. That's how long ago we're talking mm. about. And when Dave came out of national service and went back to his digs, he thought, I don't like this. So Eric said, well, look, you know, why don't you come around and stay with me and the wife? Because they ran a guest house. He said, we'll have room for you. Come and stay with us. So, yeah, he became his lodger. So they were teammates. They were rivals. They were friends. And they couldn't live together. It sounds like a kind of, you know, recipe for a sitcom or something. But but they got on really, really, really well. And. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's the thing with Dave. He had to wait so long for his opportunity to come, and then his opportunity came when Eric was poorly. And so Dave stepped in, played three matches, uh, and then Eric got well again, so he took over again. Um, but it was the story of the fourth match that, um, that Dave got to play, which was in August 1958. Funnily enough, if the anniversary of the game was yesterday, oh, yeah. and this was Dave's fourth game for Brighton's first team, and they went up to Middlesbrough, and Dave conceded nine goals. Brighton lost nine nil, and a certain Brian Clough got five of them. And you'd think, well, you know, you wait all of those years, and then all, you know, for your opportunity, and then only the fourth, you know, your fourth appearance that happens. You think maybe, you know, some people would just take the hint and go off and do something completely different. But on the train home from Middlesbrough afterwards, Brighton, um, well, one of Dave's teammates who a name you probably know and other people will probably know by the name of Dave Sexton, mm-hmm. who went on to manage Manchester United in England under-21s. Dave Sexton took uh, Dave Hollins aside on the train coming home and said, look, you're going to be a good goalkeeper. Don't worry about this. We all have setbacks. You will be fine. Just focus, you know, forget it, move on to the next game. And Dave never forgot that advice. Dave Hollins never forgot that advice and is always, always grateful to Dave Sexton for, for saying that. And sure enough, eventually Dave Hollins uh, took over Eric's position and then got transferred to Newcastle United in a, in a big money signing, the big money being, uh, drumroll please, £11,000, which was a lot of money back then, especially for a goalie. And Dave went on to play for Wales as well, got capped for Wales and played from 1962 through to 1966 and made his debut versus Pele and roomed with John Charles. And so, you know, that's not bad for a lad who was basically kind of a reserve team keeper and conceded nine goals in his fourth game. He is, he so he is much, right more, in the end. much more than a pub quiz question. 
Well, um, yeah, yeah, Dave Hollins. Well, if, if anyone recognises the name or the surname Hollins, that's because Dave is, is the brother of John Hollins, who played for Chelsea and, and Arsenal, amongst others, and, of course, managed in, in mm-hmm. later life as well. So they were brothers. They grew up in Guildford, although Dave at the time had no idea that he'd been born in North Wales when his dad had been playing non-league football. Oh, I should say um, their father was also a goalkeeper. And he'd seen out his career in North Wales just briefly where he'd been working. And Dave had been born there and had no idea of this until Brighton's manager called him into the office one day and said, congratulations, you've been called up for Wales under-23s. And, and Dave said, well, why is that then? And he said, well, you were actually born in North Wales. You qualify for, to play for, for Wales. So a few days later, Dave found himself up in uh, at the racecourse ground in Wrexham, playing in a, an under-23s game against uh, Scotland um, with Dennis Law up front against him. And uh, they drew 1-1 and, and, yeah, he played a couple of times for the under-23s and then went into the into the, the first team and, uh, yeah, made his debut, as I said, you know, over in, in a, a tour of South America in 1962. So, yeah, that's not bad when you consider where he started from and he couldn't get a match and then you can see nine goals against Borough and then... Um, yeah, you go on and do that and live a long, happy life, which he's done. If and you, Eric's done too. If you are making a film of this, what my favourite scene <laughs> will be when uh, Middlesbrough go down to Brighton uh, in the in either the return game or it would have been the return game because Clough got injured shortly after. And yeah. uh, they, <laughs> there is a great anecdote about what happens. The clue is there's no cameras. Um, and I, I love that description. I gave him a right well, actually, actually, it's quite funny because the return game that season, 1958-59, Dave was in goal for the first match uh, up at Borough, but the return match down at, um, at Brighton, Eric was actually in goal oh, for. Okay. Mid- Middlesbrough won 6-4 in that one, and Clough used to do this thing where he used to, he used to jostle opposition goalkeepers. He would sometimes do discreet little kicks and things and nudge them. You know, not just, you know, with some centre forwards, they will stand a couple of feet away from a goalkeeper in their eye line to try and put them off. Clough would go the extra mile and try and nudge them to kind of like put them off. And it drove Dave mad and it drove Eric mad as well in that particular game. And the incident you, yeah, you're referring to was after Dave had been bought by Newcastle United. Newcastle were playing at Roker Park, Sunderland's old ground, against. Sunderland and Clough by then had left Middlesbrough to go to Sunderland. Again, Cluffy was doing the thing to try and throw Dave, you know, out of his stride. You know, the nudging, the jostling, kind of little niggles here, you know, little pokes here, you know, to knock him off balance. And at one point, Dave just thought, I've had enough of this and lamped him, actually punched him. He, he looked for a moment when the referee had turned and was running up the field and the linesman was running back to his position. And Dave just thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to retaliate here. And he hit him, and the officials didn't see it. And it, actually, it was it. The referee even restarted play with a free kick to Newcastle. So um, I think the crowd didn't like it because, of course, it was mainly Sunderland fans there. They went livid. But there was nothing. Nothing was recorded of it. There was no film footage or anything of it. You know, you're talking the early '60s. You know, no one had actually witnessed it apart from some of the spectators and Clough and Dave Hollins himself. So Dave got away with it. <laughs> and the thing is, what is it? As he was coming off the pitch, Dave turned to Cluffy and went, "We're one all now." <laughs> what a great anecdote, and it is in this book. Eric and Dave: A Lifetime of Football and Friendship by Spencer Vine, uh, published 
on pitch, but of course you could tell by the Duncan Olner cover. Um, he's good, Duncan. He's brilliant. He's I, I got. I should say he's you know when it comes to designers, he's a class apart. You know he he really goes the extra. He sees everyone as his challenge, and I mean I love the copy of this book because he's kind of merged at the top. You know Brighton Pier with you know which is where Eric and Dave met, with also the Tyne Bridge, which is of course you know played such a you know Newcastle having played such a big part in Dave's life. And there's a, uh, there's a picture underneath as well of Eric Eric in goal. And the ground, actually, where that game is going on, it's Millwall versus Brighton. Uh, so it's the old den from the early 1950s with Eric falling on the ball. And, yeah, Duncan, he's done a brilliant job. Love him to bits. With Eric going to ground, it means that some strikers would come in and try and kick the ball out of his hands. Dave <coughs> Holland's rib sticks out at a funny angle. Uh, on his debut for Charlton, Eric Gill was bundled into the net by Jack Rowley, so yeah. he learned how to catch the ball with the knees in the air. And then, yeah. then suddenly yeah. in 1958, I think it was because it was Manchester United who was on the receiving end of it. In 1958, two things happened. One, with the goalkeepers, with the, more, the greater protection. And yeah. two, finally, more than one team could get up from the third yeah. division. So this was yeah. a pivotal year. In yeah, English football, was. 1958, because it meant uh, that Brighton could win promotion. In, in, in fact, they would have won promotion under that old rule in 1956, uh, the year Brighton won 20 times at home but finished second. Yeah, I mean, it was ridiculous. You had lots of clubs who would just finish on a ridiculous amount of points, but, you know, you finish second. You know, finish first, congratulations, you've got promotion. Finish second, you know, better luck next time. Yeah, it was a, it's a fascinating time that kind of late 50s in, in British football, because a lot is changing, as you say. I mean, from the goalkeeper's point of view, you know, they're getting they're starting at last to get more protection. And that's a good thing, because, I mean, you know, playing in goal in the, you know, up until the late 1950s was, was just brutal. They were afforded no protection by referees at all. Um, and it was dangerous, you know, and the worst case scenario is, you know, is there were examples where goalkeepers were, you know, mortally wounded, you know, you, they died. Um, so they started to get more, you know, protection. Uh, as you say, you know, the football league starts, you know, to see the sense of kind of letting more, you know, clubs go up, and also, of course, increasing the amount of clubs that go down. So that element of jeopardy starts coming into football as well, which is good. You know, about you don't know what's going to happen. More clubs being involved in promotion relegation. You've got, you know, things like foot, um, floodlights coming in as well. You know, floodlights didn't exist. So the advent of floodlights means that finally, you know, uh, clubs are able to play matches in the evenings. So that reduces the need to play, like, for instance, on Christmas Day, mm -hmm. which clubs used to do until that time. You know, Eric Eric in particular, you know, Eric and Dave both, both played at a time when they played at Christmas, you know, on Christmas Day. You celebrate on Christmas Eve by basically packing your bags and, you know, if you're away, I think, what was it, Eric, Eric's first Christmas Day game was Walsall away. So that was the way you celebrate. You went up, and then normally what happened is the team you played on Christmas Day, you played again the following day. Amazing. On, in, in, the, in, in the reverse game. fixture. Amazing. Yeah. So 1951-52, Eric goes up to, was it Warsaw on Christmas Day, and then the following day, the two teams travel together on the same train back to Sussex, ready to play each other the following day. And that's the way it was. It's just, it's you know, so I mean... We look at that and we laugh now and you think, well, that couldn't go on. And, and sure enough, it, you know, it, it couldn't. You imagine doing that at a time where, there, you know, there was no motorways and stuff, you know. 
internal air travel was pretty much you know it was rare you know it's it was it was uh, just ludicrous so yeah time of real change in football fascinating time which i felt i don't know if you agree johnny as well i mean it's like i often feel with you know we we you know so much of football literature starts at around 1966 you know it seems to be this interest in football you know whatever and what happened in football you know starts with england winning the world cup in 66 and you know there's so many good stories and whatever what happened after that but very little seems to really exist before then about what football was like before then you know in the post-war years the immediate post-war years the late 40s 50s and the early 60s so i think that's one thing that you know i almost educated myself doing the research for this book because there was so much there like for instance playing on christmas day stuff i knew about but I hadn't really properly kind of, you know, researched. And I think, you know, so I learned a lot through writing this as well about what football was, was like then. And that's what I want to kind of come across in the book about, you know, how times have changed. I remember reading when I was 12 or 13, Stan Matthews brought out his book. And so yeah. I, I learned all about the 40s and the 50s. Stan Matthews makes a little cameo in this book, as do George Best, Gordon Banks and Edson Arantes Donashkimento, known as Pelé. Once, yeah, once you memorise it, it's very easy to remember. Um, well, you, but, you, you said it far better than me. I couldn't do that, but yeah, yeah. But in, in the so meantime, you. your beloved Brighton loses both the goalkeepers. Eric Gill leaves and Dave Hollins leaves. Dave uh, gets stuck as a number two keeper again, but undergoes this kind of selfless professionalism, you say. Um, meanwhile, Eric has some things to say about Billy Lane. Um, yeah. Actually, I had to stop myself. And when he says the man has no father, ah, that's what it means. Very yeah. Yes. Yeah. vicious bugger, uh, yeah. Billy Lane. He, uh, this is this is crazy. Again, it's how football has has changed. You know, I mean, back then the abolition of the kind of the, the, the minimum wage or the maximum wage rather hadn't come in yet. And footballs really, uh, footballers, you know, a lot of them. I mean, the word um, slave is used. Uh, at one point by Eric. And I mean, people might think, well, you know, that's a bit strong, you know, in, in 21st century terms. But to all intents and purposes, you know, intents and purposes, they were. You joined a football club and they held all the cards. Your contract was for a year. So at uh, the end of every season, you pretty much, you know, you could be dispensed with, with no warning whatsoever. The clubs could hang on to your registration and not let you go anywhere else. So if you fell out with your manager and, you know, for whatever reason, and he wasn't going to play you, but he didn't want to sell you either, they could just they could just hang on to your, your paperwork. And that's, in the end, what happened with, with Eric. Um, he had a falling out with, uh, with Billy Lane, Brighton's manager, and Billy just decided for whatever reason, I mean, he's long dead, so I can't ask him now, just that he wasn't going to release him. Bristol City wanted to sign him uh, on a free... And then when it came to it, Billy demanded a fee and Bristol said, well, no, we can't do that. So he got stuck. And the only way of continuing to play football for Eric was to drop out of the Football League altogether. Uh, so he dropped out of the Football League and joined Guildford City, who at the time were a very, very ambitious non-league outfit playing in the Southern League. You know, this is before kind of like the formation of, of the National League or the conference, you know, as many people know it now. So he just wanted to carry on playing football. I should also say that Eric had started a, um, uh, a hotel business as well. So he had a sideline, which Billy Lane, Brighton's manager, didn't like. You know, the idea like that he was a man of independent means of, of a business, which footballers just didn't have back then. 
So he took a bit of an offence to that as well, basically, and they just had a major, major falling out. It's awful. Football had to change. I mean, when you read about this, I mean, just like, you know, you just think, well, you know, it's it's the way that footballers were treated was cattle class. Mm. And it wasn't until, you know, Jimmy Hill, you know, at Fulham and certain other players came along and threatened to go on strike about, you know, their wages and their terms and conditions that things finally changed. And that's one of the reasons it's interesting in the book, you know, Dave Hollins, actually, you know, I, I did ask him, I said, look, do you resent footballers and what they get today? You know, what they get paid and, you know, the, the wealth, particularly in the Premier League, you know, the upper echelons of football. And he said, well, it has got a bit, you know, crazy now. But he said, no, I don't. He said, because they're getting what we didn't. When you put it that way, you look back at how, you know, generations of footballers were, were treated so appalling. You, you know, you think, yeah, fair enough. This is now why footballers got what, you know, what they have. This is why we've got agents now and everything. Yeah. Because football just kind of, you know, treated them so badly for such a long time. Mm, but it's, and I have problems with how ludicrous the wages are. I mean, Nicola Pepe can't leave Arsenal because his wages are something like £7 million a year. That is yeah. That is really yeah. gasp-inducing. And really, yeah. the, 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 what about the nurses? It's true. We, we'll talk about um, now um, with Eric and Dave in their 90s. But Eric went to Guildford City, who were seeking re-election. Dave went up to Newcastle. Yeah. Um, there was a time when Dave played his brother's team, and the, there's a picture in the book... Um, which I think is in yeah. the back uh, stand first as well. This, yeah. th- this again, in, in, a, in a period, in an era in football, when the trainers were amateur, um, really things haven't changed because you get concussed players playing on through injury. Yeah. Um, not only was Dave concussed, but he was stretched off. What happened next in this particular yeah, game? Yeah, it was, it was a match at Stamford Bridge in the 65-66 season. Dave played that game uh, and was captain he was made captain by Newcastle's manager and John his brother John Hollins was made captain of the day for Chelsea so they were both captains you know and shook hands before the match which you know quite an achievement really for the two of them you know that doesn't happen often and you know it was it was a, a marvelous moment in the Hollins family history but in the first half Dave was clattered on a corner you know it was by then, it was a little bit safer to be a goalkeeper, but they were still, you know, elbowed left, right and centre and whatever. You know, incidents still happen. Eric, um, sorry, Dave was knocked out uh, and can't remember anything of the incident. He remembers going up and then bang. I think he, he, I think it was George Graham, he reckons, yes. put an elbow That's in right. on him and knocks him out. You know, George Graham, who, who later managed, you know, Arsenal. And, yeah, Dave can remember nothing about it, basically. So he goes in at half-time, and they may have given him smelling salts, they may have given him whatever, but they basically, you know, say, well, you're all right to go back out, you know, and play in the second half, and he has no memory of it. So he goes back out for the second half, and somehow in the second half he doesn't concede a goal. The match finished one all because, uh, yeah, Chelsea's goal was the moment where, where Dave was, was Polax, basically. So they scored, even though he was he was fouled. It wouldn't happen now. You look back on moments like that, and the photo you refer to is, is you know, John and, and Dave are coming off together, and, and Dave just says, I have no memory of that photo being taken at all. He says, I've got no memory of that match after the match started. And, yeah, I suppose, you know, we, we, we talk about, about concussion in rugby now and we talk about the state of many footballers, you know, um, uh, you know with neurological diseases um, now. 
and we've got to, you know, the reason that basically uh, we need rules in place about footballers now is because of what happened to them, you know, back then. I mean, just letting them play on. Rugby's very, you know, rugby's a sport I follow a lot as well at the moment, and they're still guilty of it there, really. Players being concussed who don't get, you know, should get brought off and aren't. Um, footballers is better now, but there's still a ticking time bomb there, as, as Eric and Dave refer to in, you know, in, in the book. I mean, so many of their teammates died prematurely or had their final years on planet Earth cursed by the fact that, that they had Alzheimer's yeah. and they didn't know who they were and they didn't recognise their family. What was that it's... chapter? Was it Jackie Hollins with the photo well, it... and she's going, she's not here, he's not here, he's not here, yeah. he's ill, he's yeah. not here. Yeah. Yeah, they go, they go through one particular team and, and their reckoning, her reckoning is that basically five, possibly six of them weren't right at the end of their lives, you know, i.e. they had, had memory problems or, or Alzheimer's. And they often tend to be the, the killer positions or literally tend to be centre-back, defence and up front, you know, where they headed the balls as much as they did. Uh, and goalkeepers seem to have literally dodged you know got away with it dodged it i mean you know you've got eric who is 91 you've got uh dave who is just behind him in his 80s you've got charlie baker and brian powney who were the goalkeepers after them at brighton who were still with us you know i mean combined those four goalkeepers of an age i think which is about 340 350 and yeah you know the, the aches and pains of old age are there and they take blood pills and stuff and whatever and stuff but memory wise they can remember everything yeah which is handy for you putting together their story eric and dave a lifetime yeah. of football and friendship um there is some benevolence in the game brighton paid charlton 400 pound for eric gill's services and it was lovely to know who got that transfer fee uh, i'm not going to give it away um, and then at the testimonial, uh, Eric missed his son scoring a goal. Yeah, uh, Eric's testimonial was, uh, this was when he was at Guildford City. Guildford had a, a little vote recently about, you know, um, their all-time kind of star goalkeeper was, and, and Eric won it, basically. But Eric's testimonial match, um, West Ham came down to, to Guildford to play to play them in Eric's testimonial. It was a good West Ham team. Uh, you know, you had Martin Peters, you know, Harry Redknapp, uh, Frank Lampard, uh, senior, that is. You know, it's, you go through that team, it's a good team. Yeah. And yeah, Eric decided that he wasn't going to play in his testimonial because, and this is a mark of the man, he just said he wanted to be there to go around the stands and thank people for coming. And, and it was awful weather. I mean, it's funny now, testimonials. You wonder how many young people now, you know, young fans of the game, you know, will know what testimonials are. Because, I mean, testimonial games were vital when a player retired or came to the end of his career to put a little bit of money in their back pocket for, you know, their pension for, for life going ahead to support them because, you know, the wages were so bang average at that time. So what you really wanted when you were playing in a testimonial, well, you wanted a good opposition team who could bring in the fans and you also wanted a lot of people to come. And unfortunately, Eric's testimonial, he had, he had West Ham, so that's good opposition, particularly at that time, you know, the remnants of the 1966 England World Cup team. But it rained. It poured with rain that night, and that affected the attendance. But quite a few people did come, and he wanted to be in the stands doing things like the raffle and whatever, and going round and shaking people's hands. So he wouldn't even he wouldn't even play. And Dave's um, sorry, Eric's son played in that match. Uh, Eric, um, yeah, Eric Gill's son, yeah, yeah. Steve Gill. Um, he plays, and um, 
he gets to score for West Ham as well. I should say that he was uh, he was on West Ham's books as a schoolboy. He didn't make it as a professional, but he was there as a schoolboy. So it's not like he just won a competition and got to play for West Ham. He was a pretty decent player in his younger years as well. Mm-hmm. There so, is a, there's yeah. a wonderful story, again, about Dave Hollins going into a car repair shop, which is definitely the feel-good anecdote of the year. I'm glad Dave remembered that. Yeah. When he moved back to Sussex with his wife, Jackie, um, a few years ago, pre-COVID, and yeah, he goes to change his old car. And he goes into, you know, this showroom and he's, I don't know how word slips out of who Dave was and whatever, but somebody recognises the name. And before you know it, all the all the mechanics have come out of the garage and whatever. And they're all like, oh, you, you know, you're Dave Hollins and you play for the, you know, the Albion and whatever. And he, yeah, he brings the place to, a, to a, a halt just by being there with his anecdotes. And he's a lovely guy. They're both lovely guys. And they've got lovely other halves as well. So, I mean, spending time with them you know, is is a joy. So I can see why that would have happened. I can see why he could have brought the place to a to a halt with his with his stories and just they're lovely guys as well. They're friendly. It's not all oh, me, me, me and you know what I used to do. They're just very humble people who just enjoy telling their stories. There's a lot of goal you know, a lot of goalkeepers tend to be more like that. You mm-hmm. don't you don't tend to find many kind of really big shot goalkeepers, really. You know, they tend to be humble guys because they know that one mistake, basically, on their behalf can be the end of their careers. Uh, yeah, as opposed to David De Gea, whose uh, mistake will not cost him a career because United haven't really got a second-choice keeper. And um, De Gea has been usurped in the Spanish team by... Yes, he has. Yes. Has that actually happened now? Has that been confirmed? I think well, Brighton, the, the, the player one. is Roberto Sanchez of Brighton. The player is Roberto Sanchez, yeah, who went to... Um, he went to uh, the Euros as well with Spain and correct me if I'm wrong but he didn't get to play in that yeah they went with De Gea but I think De Gea's mistakes and Sanchez's form at Brighton has helped oh Sanchez Sanchez has been playing brilliantly and it's it's really encouraging I mean for any goalkeeper as well I mean Sanchez you know it's not just like he's suddenly kind of you know become an excellent goalkeeper but I mean you know this is a guy who three years ago was on loan and playing at Forest Green so you know it's it's you know you know a mark that basically you know you can with the right club and I'm not just saying that because it's Brighton although we do have a history of you know giving players a chance if they're good enough you know you 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 can one season be playing you know at Forest Green in front of little over you know 1200 people really and then you can be playing in the Premier League and then you can be playing international football for for Spain yeah. you know if if you work hard and you dream and whatever you know this, things like this can happen, actually. Although, of course, as you mentioned it, you know, his good fortune, Sanchez's good fortune, is De Gea's poor fortune. And that's the way it is as a goalkeeper. And that, that will never change, you know, whether it's in, you know, 1951 when Eric first played or, or, or whether it's, you know, two, you know 2021. Yeah. You know, one goalkeeper's fortune is another one's misfortune. And it's brutal. Brutal position, the Who most would... brutal, I think, on, on the football field. Which is why this is such a wonderful addition to Goalkeeper Lit. Bruce Grobelar's memoir, and Neville Southall has written a couple. Now. He's written a couple, isn't he? I, I, read, I read the first one, loved it. I don't know why I haven't read the second one. That's you reminded me. So yeah, I'll Mind Games. It's about one. social issues. He wrote it with Daniel Story. I think it all. Yeah. Uh, less yeah. about goalkeeping because he's had everything he needed to say yeah. about that. But yeah, yeah, I've got a big list uh, just here of here we go. Goalkeeper Lit. Uh, which is all the books in the football library and Eric and Dave, a lifetime of football and friendship will be added 
to that oh, list. Oh, that's good of you. That's yeah, good well, of you. Yeah, Southall, Southall is another one because, I mean, you know, um, he was playing lower down the football leagues, you know, at, at Port Vale, I think, when they were possibly even in the old fourth division, he was playing for them. Yeah, it's, yes. it's, I, I think it's good grounding for keepers, you know, um, playing further down, you know, and learning your craft at that level and not being thrown in at kind of like, you know, the the Premier League or whatever, because that's when, you know, you learn you learn the basics, you learn the principles. Nick of Pope, Nick Pope Nick is at Pope. Newcastle yeah. now doing, unfortunately, at Newcastle, but I remember him <laughs> playing for various teams and he, he might well go into the World Cup as England number one. Brighton are a selling club. We know they are. Uh, and yeah. you have lost Yves Bissouma and Mark Cucurella, uh, who both played astonishingly. Did I tell you, I, I went to see Watford Brighton last season. You just passed us yeah. off the park. Lamptey, Cucurella. They're playing, as you can tell, because one was at Chelsea and one is now at Chelsea. Yeah. And they're playing yeah. below their level. But there is something about Brighton, and you're never in the news for anything bad. It seems like such a brilliant time to be a Brighton fan. If you haven't heard Mike Calvin talking to your gaffer, Graham Potter, yeah. you must. Yeah. Because... Everything he says, Graham, he was asked, look, hypothetically, what would a future England manager be like? <laughs> and and uh, Graham quite rightly said, look, Mike, I'm the Brighton manager, but yeah. hypothetically. So, so um, Estupinian and Colwell have come in, and uh, I read things about Mopay. He may be gone by the time this comes out. Well, I mean, I think, you know, I mean, I've, I've been supporting Brighton since I was nine years old when my family first moved down to Sussex and, you know, the rest of my class at Warnham Primary School used to kind of support Brighton. So I just went along, basically. And, I mean, in that time, what's that? So 78 to now, I mean, I've seen us go from, like, now, you know, and then there was the cup final in 1983 when we almost won it and Gordon Smith missed in the, the dying seconds, right the way through to being within half an hour of going out of the entire football league. You know, I've watched us in all four divisions and, you know, and losing our ground as well. We were we were basically asset stripped by a previous regime whose names I won't mention for legal reasons, although I probably could, but I won't, because why waste time on them now? You know, we've seen it all. We've seen good times and the bad times have been as bad as they can possibly get for any football club, basically, when a regime comes in and sells your ground and sells the players and you've got nothing. You don't even have a home. You know, we spent two years ground sharing at Gillingham. Yeah. You know, we spent, what, 12 years playing in an athletic stadium, you know, in Brighton, just just trying to kind of get back in the game and trying to stay alive and afloat. We have seen it all. So, I mean, yeah, you know, we know these times won't last forever. Not that I'm a glass-half-empty guy, but I'm just a bit of a realist, really, you know. You know, But I'm going to enjoy them while, while yeah, I can, I, I and think, I, I think, I think we all will. I think you're a bit Eeyore-ish. I think Brighton, <laughs> given that it is the biggest club on the South Coast, given that you've got an owner who will definitely hand it on to not an oligarch or a, a, an oil state, because that's not what Brighton is, uh, and you've got still the memories of and there are still fans going to the Amex who know Dave Hollins, Eric Gill and those days they may even have stayed in the hotel. Um, so that link, that chain, I, I was writing about Nottingham Forest this week yeah. and yeah. it took until 1999 for the Clough era to go when uh, between them Mark Crossley and Steve Chettle both went. Yeah, um, yeah. And the era of Brighton before, is there anyone there? On the club side, obviously Paul Camelin's there. But from the pre-Amex era, I don't think there... Maybe um, Solly March was in the youth team then? 
Yeah, uh, Lewis Dunk as yes, well. He was he, yeah. he was there. Who's you know Brighton's captain? I mean, he came through. That was the thing about basically when we had no option back in the days when we were playing at Withdean and ground sharing at, at, at Gillingham, other than to kind of look at you know the local leads and local schools and whatever, and try and develop you know our own talent. We had no money really, or very little money. So it was going out and looking locally, you know, to to see, you know, what was there. Uh, Solly March was part. Yeah, he was he was playing local league football at Lewis. You know, Lewis Dunk goes back even further. I mean, he played for us at Withdean and um, and came up through the ranks and other players as well. But yeah, they're they're still there. So it's it's changed now. We've got more money now, and you can look further afield, you know, to get players. But it's it's lovely that basically, you know, that line is there and a lot of people who work behind the scenes at Brighton have known the dark days you mentioned Paul Camlin who's who's Brighton's press officer for, for what it's worth me you know as, as kind of the you know a feature yeah. writer in the program you know it's yeah we you know we know we remember and and I think that's why we don't get you know there is a you know a humility there as well you know because we remember the bad times we know how how quickly things can change in football and I think, you know, we're there, and I think Graham Potter reflects that as well. We've got a manager who is, you know, is, is very much of that vein, you know. With Brighton, yeah, we're doing well at the moment. Things can change, but we're going to enjoy it while we can hopefully build for the future. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's a good time to be a Brighton fan. Whether we're the biggest club on the south on the south coast, I think Southampton might have to say something about that. I think even Portsmouth might, actually. They're in the doldrums a bit at the moment, but but that's you know that's how football changes at various points over the years. You know, Southampton have been the big ones, and Portsmouth have had their good times. Brighton have had their good times. You know, it's there's never been one big team on the south coast. It's almost like a game of musical chairs, and uh, I quite like it that way actually. Uh, Spencer Vine, thank you so much. Whatever your next book is, uh, enjoy the writing process. I think with you, you enjoy the process as much as the topic but you will you hopefully you will plug this for this season it's got a Paul Hayward quote on the front of it Paul's got a book coming out about football in England um, I wonder if that stat will be in his book about John Hollins playing for England and Dave Hollins playing for Wales um, should be uh, and of course this book goes through the whole Elizabethan age we celebrated the Platinum Jubilee this year and the book starts just after the Second World War and around the time of the coronation uh, and it ends with two, uh, a nonagenarian and an octogenarian, playing bowls in Sussex, <laughs> shooting the breeze after two years not having seen each other during the pandemic. So hopefully you'll get to play bowls with them and Jackie and um, is it Reen? Not Reen. Irene, yeah, yeah, yeah. Reenie, Reenie, yeah. yeah Irene is a yeah, but Reenie as well. Yeah, we're we're going to be meeting up next month and we'll be doing that and. Uh, there will be a belated... I'm, I'm recovering from a foot operation at the moment in, in, in Cardiff, where I live, so I can't drive at the moment, but when I can, mid to late September, there will be a kind of belated gathering stroke launch do at, uh, at the Denton Island Bowls Club in New Haven, which is where they both play. And everyone's invited, so if anyone is listening to this, you know, kind of uh, keep your eyes open on various Brighton Facebook pages or, or follow me on Twitter. When it's when the details are firmed up, you're more than welcome. Everybody can come. Hooray. Just like the library! Just like the library!